I was hiking in the desert uh, in Big Bend National Park, southwest Texas. Uh, there's a lot of uh, mountains and uh, just cacti and desert. It's beautiful right on the, the banks of the Rio Grande. Um, and uh, basically, I... Oh, there we go. Some feedback there. I was heading out with some friends on a very long hike. We were going to start out, and we wanted to go uh, take this trail up a ridge, up into some mountains, and back, and investigate a whole bunch of stuff along the way. And as we took off, we were about three-quarters of a mile from our camp. As we were walking, we had a quiet moment, and then we heard off to the side what we swore sounded like a rattle. And we're very curious, so we're like, okay, let's get out our cameras, let's investigate. And we confirmed that sure enough, this was a big, fat, and irritated western diamondback rattlesnake, the biggest species in all of Texas. Now, while the fellas uh, kept their distance, you know, like a bunch of dummies, um, I, despite their protests, wanted to get closer to the snake so I could show you this video that we have here we're going to play. And uh, what you don't get in the audio is me walking up to the snake and I was talking to it like, oh, you're an angry fella. You're an angry fella. And that, that, that did not calm the snake. And so what I was thinking was I want to get a big stick. I want to pin the snake down. And I want to get it right behind the neck. And how great of a picture, like, that would be my selfie. Like, the, 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 its head was about the size of the pad of my hand. And I just thought, that would be a rad Instagram post. Now, the, the killjoys who were with me kept insisting I was stupid, that I shouldn't do that. And I'm like, relax, guys. I got this. And they're like, no, you just got your famous last words. And I'm like, come on, it's my birthday. Lighten up. And they're like, no, you come on, Steve Irwin. We're going to go. This is how he died. I'm like, he wasn't holding a snake when he died like this. And they're like, that's the worst reasoning I've ever heard. And so finally, my brother-in-law, who is in the insurance industry, who assesses risk for a living... I said, look, I'm not sucking venom out of your hideous legs and carrying 180 pounds extra through the desert. So reluctantly, I let the snake be. And it's my hope that in the future, uh, with enough healing and dialogue, I'll be able to forgive them for not letting me hold this wild and venomous creature. Good morning. I'm a pastor and an elder. My name's Justin. Great to have you here at Riverview Church. Uh, in the sticky gospel series in the gospel of Mark. Uh, this morning, we're going to see Jesus have a very jarring conversation with his disciples. It's going to teach us a few things, namely about what a true healthy commitment to God looks like, and then also about how high the stakes of sin are, especially as they relate to other people. Give you some quick context of what's going around these 12 verses we'll be looking at today. This is shortly after Jesus uh, was transfigured. He went up on a mountain with a few disciples, and he becomes kind of like the cosmic spiritual radioactive man. The, the glory of God comes down. God the Father speaks, this is my son, listen to him. Profound happening. Then a short time later, Mark records that Jesus exercises a demon out of a boy. The, the disciples weren't able to do it, by the way. And so this happens in a very short time. So if you're the disciples at this point, you are among uh, just a few people, a handful of people who have ever heard the audible voice of God the Father, number one. 
Then you see Jesus with this riveting miracle. And so how do they respond to that? After seeing these great acts of God, uh, they get in an argument among themselves about which one of them is the greatest. Logical stuff, right, fellas? When Jesus sees this misplaced pride, what he tells them, he says, you know, if you want to be first, you need to make yourself last and become a servant of everyone else. Then he calls a little child, tenderly embraces the child in front of them, and he says, whoever welcomes a little one like this in my name, because doing things in his name is what's important, that's a person who welcomes me. That's our backdrop, okay? Verse 38 and 39, we'll take this up to verse 50. We'll riff a bit along the way. We're going to figure out whose name matters the most. John came to him and said, Teacher, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. Don't stop him, said Jesus, because there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name who can soon afterwards speak evil of me for whoever is not against us is for us so apparently there's this other unnamed independent exorcist he drives out demons now you do not need to go to seminary to know uh, demons are bad demon possession is worse getting rid of those demons that's a good thing okay so so after this happens john comes and reports to jesus that they, of course, tried to shut that down. Um, th- this guy was, one of the commentators uh, pointed this out, that this guy was actually doing something they couldn't do. So perhaps they're feeling a little insecure. Perhaps for lunch they had a peanut butter and jealous. Uh, they, they, they are sideways. Good has been named. Good has been done in the name of Jesus. This unnamed guy is doing this good in the name of Jesus. Now, whenever we hear in the name of, or to do something in the name of, it evokes something greater than the individual. You're appealing to someone or something, right? If, 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 if we are in relationship and I said, you know, stop, if you keep doing that, that's going to break my heart, stakes are kind of low. But if I said stop in the name of love before you break my heart... Stakes getting you are transgressing not against me but against love itself. And so, whenever I hear in the name of, like, I kind of have this Monty Python esque, like, medieval envoy that, like, we come in the name of the crown, like this groveling servant, like, you're invoking the reputation and the authority. So, if you mess with these people, you're messing with the crown. I'm acting on behalf of, I'm, I'm being a representative of. And so especially if it has to do with God, doing something in the name of God is a very big deal. So this exorcist guy, this unnamed guy, does good, do, good deeds. He invokes the name that is before all other names. And John's like, yeah, we, we, we try to stop it. What do you think, Jesus? Well, this is presumptuous. This is self-important. Because it seems that their barometer, and I think this is something that we need to be careful with because it can speak to us as well, uh, of whether or not somebody else is acceptable is whether or not that person is okay with me. I'm the measuring stick. You're the measuring stick. Uh, You know, he wasn't with us, so we tried to shut it down. But Jesus seems to tell them, it doesn't matter whether or not he's with you. He's with me. And if they're okay with me, they're okay. I'm the measuring stick, not you. Your reputation, 
It's insignificant. You're standing compared to other people. That is insignificant. What matters is what people do in relation to my name, speaking evil of my name, my name not getting its due. That would be the tragedy. We can be very indifferent about other people, and I think that's sometimes okay or to be expected. We only have so much compassion, so much care, so much attention. People are on the periphery. But we can't be indifferent about Jesus because he is so central. Uh, in the book of uh, 1 Corinthians, Paul is uh, confronting a church that kind of looked like the Jerry Springer show, and they were very immature. They had factions, and usually that's an evidence of being immature, is that you have all these splintered frac- fr- uh, factions, these groups that are at each other's throats. And this is what Paul says when he writes them. For my part, brothers and sisters, I was not able to speak to you as spiritual people. Now, these are Christians. They're supposed to be living in in Christ's name. They have the Holy Spirit. Couldn't speak to you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, of the corrupt fallen nature, as babies in Christ. Not childlike, but childish. Because you are still worldly. For since there is envy and strife among you, are you not worthy and behaving like mere humans? For whenever someone says... I belong to Paul. They're, they're, they're Christians. But I belong to Paul. I'm on Team Paul. Or I belong to Apollos. I'm Team Apollos. Are you not acting like mere humans, just living according to the old nature, not the new nature? So Paul's like, is Christ divided? Could we really chop Jesus up into different bits? Aren't we all supposed to be on the same team here? Like, we're all co-workers at God, Inc. We are rowing in the same direction. And so what Jesus does is he shuts down John and the disciples, not the other guy, because he's doing good. He's doing good in Jesus' name. Now, I want to be careful here. I don't want to oversell this and say Christianity is one big rug and we sweep everything underneath it. That's not what I'm saying, Um, because sometimes disagreement is very necessary. It's called for. The Bible is full of evaluation, and it calls us to be discerning and to make uh, evaluations. Sometimes we need to be bold. We see even Paul confront uh, Peter. Like This needs to happen to, to call out heresy, bad doctrine, bad ideas, or hypocrisy, right? Bad teaching. So sometimes conflicts are necessary. Other times they are unfair. They're judgmental, and they're the result of pride. Case in point, Christian Twitter. Uh, I am excited uh, to be going later this week to a theology conference, a few friends from Riv, and I was online and I was just looking at some quotes, reading some, you know, from some authors and some speakers that really spur me on, really encourage me, just leaders in thought, and I feel a little mentored from afar, and um, as I was doing that, I, I then made the mistake of reading the comments, because I'm like, man, this is great, everybody else is probably so encouraged, you ever do that? You read the comments, and you're just like, wow, the internet. And so I happened upon just an abject dumpster fire of condemnation, really some trivial stuff in the grand scheme, a lot of self-important critics. You know, you've got some guy from, like, Nowheresville, Ohio, and he's got 31 followers, and just going after seasoned, qualified ministers who, on the surface, unless you know something I don't, seem to be doing their best for the last 25 years, faithfully trying to serve Jesus, just calling them out, threatening God's displeasure. And I kind of wondered, like, is that you, not God? One of the most discouraging things that happens to us 
and frankly, to be honest, that we do to other people, is when someone should have my back and they don't, or when we should have someone else's back and we don't, and we conflate our own junk, our own suspicions with biblical discernment, and we try to kind of kneecap, undercut people who are trying to follow faithfully. After all, Jesus said, the world will know that we are his disciples by our love, <laughs> not by our trolling. But how often do we bite and devour, right? We're essentially, when we do that, we are, even if we don't realize that, we're squabbling over who's greater. Who's the most devoted? Who goes to the best church? Who's in the best denomination? Or above all that other stuff, Right? Who's the most theologically precise? And again, where this is sneaky is some of these things are good. We want to be theologically precise. But theological precision isn't a ladder where I get to climb and to be superior. It's not a pecking order. We're not going to fight over who's a better Christian. There was one Christian who was a better Christian. And he died for all the bad Christians. And that's us. So, disciples ought to be inclined to be tolerant of people when they're different. Or they have different convictions. So Jesus is then going to reframe this conversation. 40 and 41. For whoever is not against us is for us. And whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name, because you belong to Christ, because you belong to the Messiah, the central one, the important one, you identify with me, truly I tell you, he will never lose his reward. Jesus has one team. There's no room for factions. And Jesus says, I am the only one who gives out rewards. So what is or isn't done for him, even the seemingly insignificant things, if it is done in his name, that's what matters. Small things can become great things when they are done for the right person. The humblest act of kindness, a cup of cold water, won't go unnoticed or unrewarded. So what Jesus is going to do now is he's going to pivot. He's going to take the guys away from finding fault in others. And he's going to pivot towards examining the self. Very sober warning followed by very strong language. Verse 42. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to fall away, it would be better for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. These are deliberate words from the best teacher that has ever walked the earth. This wasn't an oops, this wasn't a typo. What a millstone was, you may not be familiar with a millstone. I've never used a millstone, so I had to, I had to look this up. What did it look like? Well, a millstone is this great, huge stone that would be used to grind up grain. You want to make some bread, what do you do? You get some grain, and you get actually two stones. You got a base stone, it's flat, you throw the grain on there, and then you run the stone over top, and that makes it into a fine powder, you make yourself some bread, okay? What Jesus is saying, if you cause any little ones who believe in me, and he's not just saying uh, children, minor children, though I think we can make an argument that the stakes probably even get higher when it comes to kids, but people who believe in me, because we're all children of God, to fall into sin, you diminish their, you diminish their faith, uh, that is worse than trying to cuddle up with a rattlesnake. The specter of hell awaits. You would actually be better off having a giant, heavy, weighty millstone put around your neck and pushed overboard. That would be preferable to the consequences of causing a child of God 
to sin. So if, if you find it hard to swim in a scenario like that, we should think twice about the consequences, consequences of our action. Then he launches into saying that we need to take sin so seriously that we should be willing to take even radical steps to avoid it. Verse 43 through 48. So if your hand causes you to fall away, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than to have two hands and to go to hell, the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to fall away, cut it off. For it is better for you to enter life lame than to have two feet and to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to fall away, gouge it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. He's saying, fellas, stay away from sin. That bite, God's wrath, you want nothing to do with it. I want to be clear. He is using figurative language, but figurative language to describe a literal reality. Okay, I don't want us to, to make the mistakes that some of the monks made in the you know, Middle Ages where we're just going to whip ourselves or mutilate ourselves. He's not suggesting that because even if you did that, you could lose a limb, you could lose an eye. Sin comes from the heart. Okay, that, that, that wouldn't get rid of the problem. This is hyperbole. He is warning us about the seriousness of sin because guess what? Our hands do things. Our feet take us places. Our eyes see things. Our tongues say things. Our fingers type things that cause us to stray, to fall away, that cause us to have an impact on other people, and it pollutes. So even for those of us who believe, who are declared positionally righteous with God, adopted into his family, sin is still extremely dangerous. We can be hardened by its deceitfulness. I have seen so many people, uh, you start out on a path, and oops, 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 and then all of a sudden, your conscience becomes seared. And you are so morally insensitive, and you are unbothered, you are unfeeling. No high highs of joy, no low lows of, of having just a moral compass that just feels the way a human being is supposed to feel. I believe God also, and I think this is, this is in Hebrews, that God will bring temporal discipline into our lives. There's consequences. We can lose peace. We can lose strength. We can use, uh, we can have less usefulness for ministry. We can use up our credibility. And if we continue to sin, Scripture indicates that that might actually prove that we were never converted in the first place. The stakes are very, very high. Think about the Lord's Prayer. Like, Jesus, teach us how to pray. He's like, well... Lead us not into temptation and deliver us from evil. Sometimes, oftentimes, more than I would like to admit, um, I am neutral. I am indifferent towards sin. I'm not going out of my way. I'm like, yeah, I'm not running towards it, right? It's not a big deal. Other times, it's easy to be indulgent, to give ourselves easy access to sin. Uh, in his book, uh, the mortification of sin, the killing of sin, fancy word, $5 word for sin. John Owen famously warned Christians that you need to be killing sin, lest it be killing you. Kill the snake, or the snake's going to kill you. Avoid the occasions, avoid the triggers, avoid the people that incite sin, and don't be that person in someone else's life. 
question is, when you look at this, like if we're going to apply this, am, am I willing to do what it takes? Are you willing to do what it takes? And I want to be honest, this is where sometimes comparison with others is not helpful. Sometimes it helps it if we're going to raise the bar a little bit. But sometimes other people don't have the wiring that you have. They don't have the background. They don't have the mistakes. And so if something is okay for them, it it may not always be okay for you. And I, I don't want to get overly pietistic and uptight. That's not what I'm saying. But maybe, I have a short list, this is what it might look like for us. Maybe there's a few numbers on our phone that we need to delete. Maybe we have some apps on our phone we need to delete or only use them in public around other people. Maybe there are political pundits that fill our heart with pride, division, and contempt for other image bearers of God because they don't (laughs) want to be mindful, Ephesians 6.12, that says that our battle is not against flesh and blood, right? Maybe we need to quit listening to those people. Maybe it's time for us to get in some form of an accountability relationship or group because something powerful happens. It's hard. It is such a difficult thing. It's a hard pill to swallow. But when we bring our our dark things out into the light, so much of the power leaves. So much of the hiding and the shame leaves. This tracks with what Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 2. I love the the way the New Living puts it. He says, run. Doesn't say coddle. (laughs) Doesn't say entertain. He says, run. Run from anything that stimulates youthful lusts. Instead, pursue righteous living, faithfulness, love, and peace. Enjoy the companionship of those who call on the Lord with pure hearts. Plug for Riv Communities. Twice a month, we meet twice Thursday nights, Sunday afternoons, holler at your boy. So Jesus is warning, you need to take drastic measures because it's better to go to, go to heaven as a cyclops than hell with both your eyes. I've talked about hell. I've mentioned hell. There's been other times in the past while where it's just been mentioned and I haven't leaned in. That was not the thrust of the passage, so I've kept moving. So what I want to do is I'm going to put it in park, and I actually don't want to skip over that. Okay? So let's be uncomfortable for a few minutes, and then we'll continue the sermon. What did Jesus teach about hell? If we look through the data of Scripture, particularly in the words of Christ, we can see that, that there's a lot there. Jesus spent more time warning about hell than he even did comforting about heaven. Hell is mentioned, or, or an adjacent term that's the same kind of thing, it's just called by a different thing, many different times in the Gospels, dozens of times. And the language he uses for hell is connected to the Hinnom Valley. It's the steep ravine on the southwest side of Jerusalem. Um, In ancient times, human sacrifice was practiced there. It was dark. It was evil. And everybody's like, that is a cursed spot. That is good for nothing. And so they turned it into a trash dump. People would burn things, leave it there. And and this became a picture of divine wrath. Uh, just the destruction. And so the Edwards commentary, one of the commentaries I consult regularly, said that this gruesome and this grotesque language is there as, as, as a proxy for hell, as a stand-in, as a warning for the consequences of rebelling against God. And, and I know this makes us uncomfortable, and it should. It should. But discomfort does not make a truth less true. It just makes it more severe. 
And, and so what does Jesus say? Just in this passage, he says, hell, unquenchable fire, hell, hell, where the worm doesn't die, where the fire doesn't go out. Just a quick overview, not comprehensive. This is described as a place of punishment for the wicked. Elsewhere, Jesus says, uh, unquenchable fire, Matthew 3. Eternal fire, Matthew 25. Uh, In Daniel, Old Testament, shame and everlasting contempt. That is how the place is described. Luke 16, another gospel, Jesus says, it's a place of torment, a place of fire. Paul, the apostle Paul, 2 Thessalonians 1, calls it a place of everlasting destruction. Okay, there's a few authors. How about a few more? John records in Revelation 14, the place where the smoke of torment rises forever. The psalmist in the Old Testament, uh, it's a place where the wicked are subjected to the wrath and justice of God. Who's feeling good? C.S. Lewis. There is no doctrine. He's not feeling good. He's just, you know, anyways, summative. That's a pivot, transition, not put in well. Okay, C.S. Lewis says... There is no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than this if it lay in my power. You resonate with that a little bit? Like, eh, that kind of hurts the branding, right? But it has the full support of Scripture, and specifically our Lord's own words. It has always been held by Christendom, and it has the full support of reason. If a game is played, it must be possible to lose it. That's a summary that's not even comprehensive about the existence of hell. The reason why is unbelief and sin. Romans 3, we all sin, right? We're not perfect. You have to go a long ways, find somebody really delusional to think they don't sin. Romans 6 says that the punishment, the just punishment for sin is death. Hell is eternal death because of our sin. And normally this would be where I stop, (laughs) But again, I've, I've kind of combed over it in the past just to make other points, so I'm just going to lean in a little further. William Booth was a British uh, Methodist preacher. He started the Salvation Army that we know today. Um, and when he was speaking how to equip and motivate Christians to preach and to serve for faithful ministry, this is what he said. Most Christian organizations would like to send their workers to Bible college for five years. He's not saying that's a bad idea, by the way. But I would like to send our workers to hell for five minutes. That would prepare them for a lifetime of compassionate ministry. So this reality of hell is supposed to spur us on, to reframe and and, and change how we interact with others, with those that we, we know, those that we love, those that we do life with. It's not supposed to be something that we look at and say, how can I rework this, make it more palatable? Universalism is not in the Bible. That's wishful thinking. And so Jesus is warning against this. We're not supposed to act like the snake isn't there. We're not supposed to act like the snake doesn't bite. We're not supposed to act like like the snake isn't going to harm us when it bites. It's there. We're supposed to stay away from it. So then Jesus concludes these two verses uh, with a very, very interesting statement. He says, for everyone will be salted with fire. What does that mean? Salt is good. But if that salt should lose its flavor, how can you season it? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with one another. Where are you going with this, Jesus? What does it mean to be salted with fire? Well, again, James Edwards, the the commentator, explains that uh, 
Fire and salt are, are metaphors for a discipleship because they can both test and approve substances, right? They, they, they purify. Jesus wants us to leave, live clean lives, okay? And, and then they, re, they, they refine. They help us persevere and press on. He wants us to do that as well. So Jesus here, he's talking to true disciples. They do believe in him. They've got their, their issues, warts and all, but they believe in him. And so even though they do have eternal security, um, he, he says there's still a fire, so to speak, that we're all exposed to, right? But for true believers, for true disciples, it's not a damning fire. It's not to destroy us. It's to refine us. A lot of you, you, you have metal. Maybe it's a, it's a wedding ring, right? They have heated that up to make it the way that it is. It wasn't to destroy the metal. It was to smooth it. It was to bend it. It was to make it more beautiful, to contour it. We are going to be heated up. We are going to be refined to remove the impurities, just like metallurgy. That's the heat. That's the fire. What about the salt? Well, salt is a preservative. Most of us know this. If you like beef jerky, it's probably salty, so it can last a while, right? In a world without refrigeration, especially back in the day with meat that would putrefy very, very easily, salt was essential. So essential even to this day. And he's saying, Christians, you can help preserve society. Christians, you can help preserve your community. Let sanctification do its work. Be salted with fire. And then finally, this great book end, at the end of this blurb, he says, and be at peace with one another. We started, they were not at peace with the unnamed exorcist who was doing good and doing good in Jesus' name. He says, finally, summatively, just be at peace with one another. The primary word for peace in the New Testament is Irene. That's where we get the, the name Irene from. Come on, Irene. Anyways, it speaks to rest and tranquility. Do you have Irene in your relationships with other people right now? Are they at rest? Are they tranquil? He says, be at peace. That's a command. This is the Prince of Peace who brings us peace with God by being our sacrifice. That's Romans 5. He commands us to seek peace throughout the Bible, to be peaceable people as far as it depends on you. Be at peace. Be peaceable people. That's our passage. Those are the, the 12 verses. How do we apply this? What, what sense do we make of this gospel episode? Well, I have, I have three points. Um, to, to, to not get bit by God's wrath at sin. Three ideas, three thoughts. Live for Jesus' name, number one. Live for the name that is above all names. Now, in order to do this, the first step there, the essential step is that we convert, that we follow him. The bad news is we have a condition. We have already been bitten by sin. And part of our condition is we don't realize how bad that bite is, okay? And so we are separated from God. God can be everywhere, always, all at once. So we're not separated from him by his imminence, but we're separated by his transcendent holiness. We can't, you can't go into somebody's house if you've got dog poop on your shoes, right? You've got to take that off before you go in. And cosmically, as a, as a moral and ethical neat freak, God is saying, you, you, you can't come to me unless you're clean. He does white hot wrath directed at anything even remotely evil. 
And all of us, to a person, has provoked sin, we've encouraged sin, we've promoted sin, we've not interacted, what we have done with other people, we've led them there. We've gossiped or we've criticized, we've nursed grudges, we've second-guessed people when we should have just went along with it, we've put ourselves first. We've all made sin easier and faith harder. All but one, that was Jesus. And that's the good news. The righteous one, he came before us. He paid the death penalty. He lived the perfect life. He covered us. He removed our sin. And the good news is that hell is entirely avoidable. Jesus took the venom. He killed the snake. He doesn't have to have any power. And so in response, we carefully want to live for his name. That we don't cut corners. That we don't live for ourselves. That we don't worry or resent other people if they happen to outshine us. That we don't think in that kind of way. That we would work hard. That we would strive for exodus, or exodus, excellence. Colossians 3. Whatever you do in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. We live for his name. Secondly, what else do we do? Generally speaking, we examine ourselves and we accept others. That doesn't mean that others aren't wonky. (laughs) That's not what that means. But it means that generally speaking, we are harder on ourselves than we are on others. Typically, that will give us credibility and a standing. That will perk up their conscience a little bit more. If we're honest, we probably have less influence than we think. And if we're really honest, we have no control over other people anyways. And how much time do we waste finding fault in other people? So much energy doing this, and especially in an era where ideological lines in the sand are being drawn and the Bible is sometimes silent or, or, or maybe only barely leans in. We have this pulling people apart, pulling churches apart. At the end of the day, no one will be accountable to you. I won't. You won't be accountable to me. We don't have to give account to each other, right? We are all accountable to God. We will all have to stand before God. I will have to stand before God for all that I have done. I will have to stand before God for all that I am accountable for, everything I've been entrusted with. So unless we want to walk around with, with logs in our own eyes, fixated at the specks in other people's eyes, The general posture of examining ourselves and accepting others is preferable. Thirdly, love people and love Jesus' people so well. We need to take seriously the role that we have in the lives of other people. Honestly, there there are so many times where I'll, I'll fire out a quick email and just a response of, hey, thank you so much. And I'm just thinking it's a to-do list, and it meant something to them. And I just gave them a piece. Here's a hyperlink. And they're like, wow, thank you so much. And then that thanks makes me feel seen. And I'm like, it wasn't a to-do list. That was an image bearer. That's the small things, right? What we do for God's people and for all people matters. The potential impact that we have can make Christ attractive or it can embitter people. We can encourage, we can discourage, we can be taxing. I mean, I, I talk with so many people that they come in and they've taken a break from church because of that life group that judged them. Or I grew up and my uncle abused me and he was clergy. 
So you think about this. The, the stakes are so high when we invoke the name of Jesus. They're, they're high. They're high. It doesn't matter if you've got a, a relative or we're talking about Christopher Columbus, somebody who claims the name of Christ, and then they go out and they do something evil, and they're like, yeah, God endorses me. That is profound. So for us, we need to consider, are we people who gossip and grumble, or are we people who, who defend people? We extend goodwill and grace when, when they stumble in the ways that we stumble? Do, do we go around looking for those in our midst that work hard and encourage them? Or do we nitpick? Do we find fault when we see people pouring out, out their lives over trivial matters? I'm going to close with Jesus' words. Um, for those who love his people so well, this is the analogy of uh, the sheep and the goats, where the great shep- shepherd will do a, a sort someday. And I'm going to omit the stuff that speaks to hell at the end, because I've already went there. I'm just going to leave us with a positive frame. Call to mind those people that are in your life, the people that are around you, and use your imagination for a date in the future. Jesus says, when the Son of Man comes in glory, with all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them, one from another, just as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. And then the king will say to those on the right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you as a stranger and take you in or without clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I tell you, whatever you did to the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Let's pray. Oh, great king, Uh, we come before you looking at some sobering words. Uh, We thank you so much that you do have wrath, you do have justice, you hate sin, you see it's evil more than we could ever imagine, but you are love, and that you have went and you have paid for that, so that if we have faith in you, we do not have to pay for what Jesus has paid for. Lord, let this truth, this good news, spur us on. Lord, help us to deal radically with the sin in our life. And the most radical thing that was ever done to combat sin was you going to the cross and you dying in our place. So help us to, in faith, receive that grace and to live as humble people, loving people so well because we have first been loved. In your name, amen.